Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm Paul Keelan. And today we are going to be looking at 2016's film Race. So we're finally getting to the end of our Olympic themed sports movies. And to be a little clear about this category, it's pretty much Olympic themed running movies and this film has a double entendre at the center of its name it's both about racial relations and racing so it's a really interesting film we're going to get dive deep into a lot of the context and subtext of the film but before we get there we're going to do what we always do and give you the box office weekend and a glimpse into the films that were coming out at the time i'm going to take you back in our hot tub time machine to 2016 February. And it was an amazing weekend in cinema as all weekends are because we love cinema here. To be honest, it was a pretty much a middling weekend in many respects with a few standout films. So I'll let you start it off, Jordan. Which films stuck out to you the most? Oh, for sure. So it's actually after the Valentine's Day weekend, which I think is important to point out because I mean, everyone knows that's, that's a pretty big box office day, particularly for couples. This was a big one for couples who are um, comic book fans because they had the greatest compromise ever. Uh, Deadpool had been released the week before on Valentine's Day. So it was a very easy date night movie. I remember for myself uh, in terms of what are we going to watch tonight? You know, it's usually horror, action, romantic comedy. This time we had a comic book movie in there. So that was really cool. So this uh, race came out again the following week. So Race, we'll just throw out there, came in at number six, but number one was still Deadpool, still riding that wave strong. I don't know off the top of my head how long Deadpool was number one, but it was it was for a while. Everyone knows it's like the first R-rated movie or comic book movie besides Blade that did pretty well. I should rephrase that because Blade didn't do very well, but uh, it was the first R-rated movie in the Marvel franchise that they would throw out there that did end up doing a commercial success. But I digress. Uh, anyways, uh, at that time, it had grossed uh, a total of 236 0.8 million that week though 56.4 million was deadpool so i mean we all as i said i won't go on too long about deadpool fun movie um obviously number one that weekend for a reason uh what came in at number two paul yeah so number two is kung fu panda three i've seen a few of these i get them kind of mixed together there's a lot of very warm steam buns in them i know and a lot of mm. chopsticks being thrown I've never seen an entire one of these, to be honest. I'll have to cut you off. But I, I get that reference. Like, I'm familiar with the franchise from theme parks and, you know, what whatnot. Is this a DreamWorks one? Yeah, it's definitely yeah. DreamWorks. I, okay. It's connected with 20th Century Fox, which I think DreamWorks is under their umbrella. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those ones I went to Universal Studios. I feel like they weren't using that franchise enough considering how popular it was. Yeah, definitely. And I was in a big animated kick around this time. I just watched a ton oh. of animated movies like Rango. That was a great one. That was a good one, yeah. Um, yeah, Wreck-It Ralph is fantastic. So I was just really into them, actually. Like, even uh, Heavy Rain with the Chance of Meatballs, I believe I might have botched the name, but that was a pretty good animated film. But Kung Fu never really hit for me. Uh, some people love them, but it just wasn't for me. So moving on to number three, we have Risen. I have not seen Risen. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I tend to not see biblical films that are mainstream like these. But we have the opposite end of the spectrum of number four with The Witch. And I've definitely, definitely seen The Witch. The Witch is utterly fascinating and mesmeric. It stars Anna Taylor-Joy. It's A24's great take on the Puritan witch hunt time period in like, I think, 17th century Protestant America. Um, and it's got surrealistic elements. It's got an eerie tone. It's just 
Awesome. So totally recommend that to anyone else. What else on this list is popping out to you? All right. So like I said, race was number six. Um, let's just get the figures out there for that. Uh, came in making 7.3 million. Pretty good showing for, again, like we considering the movies we've mentioned out there, comic book movie, horror, like we said, always is great around Valentine's Day. Um, those horror flicks. How to be single, like I mentioned, you got to have that romantic comedy still in the air in around um, February. Um, then Zoolander 2 was in its fourth week, uh, which I might admit, I don't think I've seen it. I don't think I've seen it. I'm a big Zoolander, the fan of the first Zoolander too. So this might have been one I just skipped. I remember seeing the second um, Anchorman and kind of not really being that big into it. Um, did you watch Zoolander 2, dude? I did. I chuckled a few times, but it was pretty bad. It was nowhere near number one. I will always remember number one because the scene where they have a gasoline fight and Zoolander himself liked a cigarette made my dad laugh so hard. He had a fit and had to like leave the theater. <laughs> and still, he still talks about it. It's like the funniest scene of all time. Two though, you can tell is really bad because it's second week. It's down 60% in the box office. That is yeah. a major, major drop. So only 5 million after its second week. Race, which I had never heard about until this year as well, mm-hmm. beat it out. I'm actually surprised we'll get more into like the box office successor uh, failure of this film later on, but I'm surprised that it hit the 7.3 million for its first weekend. And it went on to make, I think around 25 million. It's a focus feature film. I used to love focus feature films as a teenager. Mm -hmm. You know, those were like the smart adult films that would just make me feel kind of like, you know, mature and sophisticated as a kid. Um, They don't push the buttons like, or go too out of the box, like a 24 and they're not so stylistically Mm -hmm. heavy. They're just like solid, adult entertainment and so race kind of fits that but it also feels a little dated because of that because i think focus feature is about a decade or two past it's like zeitgeist uh, apotheosis so mm-hmm. it, yeah it's it, it, we'll get into that more later going on number nine the revenant you've already named up the revenant a bunch in our podcast i noticed especially sure. uh in indian horse i like to bring that one up so let you elaborate a little bit about that when did you see it what are your favorite parts what do you remember about that film yeah man revenant was one i came way after that won the academy awards and everything it's just why i didn't want to go see in theaters to be honest, it's kind of, i was kind of done with that genre it's a genre i like a lot but like i've said before it's one of those ones i've Felt like it fit more in with like what was coming out in like 2008 with like There Will Be Blood and um, No Country for Old Men. My In terms of its stylistic inclinations, its thematic content, it went around with a lot of that like Cormac McCarthy style, like literature. It felt like, oh, that kind of that kind of canon. So like it's something I like. I, I'm, it sounds like I'm hating on it. It's something I really enjoy reading. I'm a big fan of that stuff. For like it was just for whatever reason I just wasn't into it. it's like how I get with some kind of with like a certain comic book characters I just don't want them at a certain time um, but I did finally come around to it I did dig it though um, I did like it I felt like I will say I felt it was a bit overrated using our scale um, in terms of its acclaim uh, it's not my favorite DiCaprio movie it's by far by no means my favorite DiCaprio movie and by no means my favorite Tom Hardy movie I kind of think of it's not the best representation of Tom Hardy he kind of plays with all the things I uh, in that role that I don't necessarily love about his performances even though he does have incredible range just throwing that out there because it sounds like i'm just dishing on him but uh i digress revenant is a good movie i do think it's just overrated um it's one of those movies i watch it really makes me want to go down the the list of all the actors in it who i think just have so many other roles out there that um i just enjoy more yeah i have a weird experience with this film i saw it first on uh just projected on my wall i used to project films on my wall in korea it was a screener though it was one of the oscar screeners (laughs) um and 
It was kind of grainy. It was kind of like a Sunday afternoon. I was eating food half the time, you know, like watching and eating a little distracted. And I was just a little bored and it was a little drawn out. A few weeks later, I went on a long run. And after like my run, I didn't even make it home. And I just went by the theater and it was starting right then. And I was kind of freezing cold. And I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to step in the theater. It's like five bucks Sundays at this theater. And I was just spellbound the whole time. So <laughs> it, it was definitely hit or miss for me as well. But this film absolutely took me for a ride the second time. Uh, Emmanuel Lebesky's cinematography is what really pulled mm. me in on the second viewing. I mean, he's the greatest of all time, perhaps. I mean, I don't want to get into that debate, but the list of his films are just, is never ending. And it's just consistently beautiful what he shoots. But uh, his light, that, that really cold, uh, pinkish, bluish, frigid, tonality he gets and the way he's like spins his camera on to make you immersed in these scenes when there's like ambushes and so forth. I just loved it. I really, really did. Mm. It has all of the pinnings to be an overrated film. And I get that in some ways it is, it doesn't hit like I think many people expected it to hit with DiCaprio and a survivor flick and the great Alejandro Inaritu, who's just, you know, you know, he know never misses and he's coming off of Birdman. Uh, you know, which won a ton of Oscars. And from Beautiful, we grew up with 21 Grams and so forth. I loved mm-hmm. his his films as a teenager, like Amaros Peros was one of my all-time favorite films as an adolescent. So I love his sensibility, first of all, like he loves human sorrow. And I think he has a quote that says like, that's what brings compassion or evokes compassion and human togetherness is sorrow. He That's his thematic motif throughout his career. And this film's filled with sorrow. It's also quiet and slow at times, but I I feel like in a theater, if it ever comes back, that's the place to see it. So I'm just going to stick up. I love The Revenant, but my first viewing, I didn't. I was was completely (laughs) indifferent to it, my first viewing. So, and we also have, right, I'm going to, Star Wars, episode seven, The Force Awakens. What is your experience seeing this movie in theaters? Oh, I love this. This one I saw with my family Christmas because it was in theaters in December. So this was just like 10 weeks out and it's still at numbers number eight. Just throwing that out there. It's shows the impact. This is one everyone was waiting for. It's and easily of, of the new ones. This is the one I like the most. I like it for the reason I think people don't like it. I like the way it plays with the structure of the first movie and playing within that existing framework, just like if you're taking like any type of genre television show and really just playing within that framework and expanding it in a little bit. It gave us a lot of cool characters that I don't think really delivered, but I loved watching the first one, man. That scene when they find the the fucking Millennium Falcon and they are being chased by TIE fighters and, and that and Jakku. Really cool scene. There's so much good stuff in that first one. I mean, the scene with Kylo Ren and Han Solo. I mean, that's one of those few ones. Like I said, I always hate on uh, Harrison Ford. I'm a giant Harrison Ford. And I hate I hate on him a lot, his older performances, because he is an older man. And it's like watching like, you know, an older man you've known your whole life as they get older, trying to do something they just can't do anymore as well as they used to. Let's be honest. So it's kind of, that was a good role where he just kind of got, you know, his, his quick lines in there. He dies. I remember it made, uh, made my nieces cry. I seen Han Solo die, which I, like we talked about this one. It was one of those like interesting ones we talked about. Like there's an uh, interesting level of like, just like you said, of sorrow in these in these films. I thought it was introduced. I Like I said, I really like the way that scene is. It's really introduced really well. But yeah, it was like definitely the highlight, I will say, of the of the sequels for sure. But yeah, it was as far as theaters, man, it was some of the most fun I've had in the theater, I'd say, in the last decade easily. Yeah, that film was a blast. It was kinetic. Everyone was so stoked because it was like the first of the final part of, you know, the nine 
episode mm-hmm. saga, the central saga. I mean, we had all these other spinoffs, which I thought were actually strong too, but yeah, I loved it too. It was a blast. Moving down to number 10, we have Hell Caesar, a Coen Brothers film. I had a blast with this. This one is kind of maligned and slightly shunned by most people. It's like a Probably, I'm not looking up in front of me, but like a 50, 60% Rotten Tomatoes, which is extremely low for the Coen brothers. And uh, the critical community was kind of cold. But man, I thought this was a fun send up of Hollywood and whatever time period it was, like with like a a Western cowboy star, like kind of a John Wayne-like figure that's more charismatic than John Wayne would have been. Um, And George Clooney's on point in it. It's just Coen brothers having fun in their element. I I saw it in theaters in Korea, I I had a blast. So I uh, totally recommend that one. Um, we also uh, have to go quite a bit down, but we have some cool films by association with our with our podcasts, our you know sports theme. We have The Finest Hours, which I saw. It's okay. It's with Chris Pine. It's like a survival flick about a ship that's bombarded by a storm. It's one of those like out at sea adventure near death stories. And it's so-so, but Craig Gillespie, directed it. He also directed I, Tanya. So it's an interesting shift from him, which we'll be uh, looking into his work later once we do I, Tanya, which I'm stoked for. I love that movie. And we also have The Mermaid. And The Mermaid is zany and eccentric and weird as hell. Um, the Mermaid is directed by... The Mermaid is directed by uh, Stephen Chow. And Stephen Chow also did Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle which are two super fun sports movies. They kind of mix martial arts and sports together in a really cool way. And The Mermaid's like about the government of China trying to threaten the mermaid race. And they have to like fight this nefarious organization. It's batshit crazy. It's just off the wall. It's surreal, comedic, campy, and just a feast for the eyes. It's filled with CGI in the most endearingly strange way. I totally recommend it. And anything from Stephen Chow is fun. So if you want a good time that's a, that's a feast for the eyes, check that one out. So uh, now that we're scrolling way down in the list, is there anything on the kind of the bottom dregs of this uh, box office list that, that calls your name? Only what I'm seeing is uh, The Big Short. Just, and we talked about it a couple times on here, I believe. We've done a couple of 2016 films, but oh, it's not like an underrated movie or anything like that. Just one of those good movies in a list of, like like we mentioned, they're a decade of oversawed movies pretty much. But that's definitely one check, worth checking out. Yeah, it's an interesting take on Steve Crow, right? He's very serious in it. That one kind of launched this new type of comedy, this like dramedy that's very specific where the, the fourth wall is broken a lot and I'm quite a big fan of it. And you know, that that's an Adam McKay film, right? And he's from like Anchorman and Talladega Nights. And so he made this kind of shift to more serious films, but he's really sort of fused the sensibilities together of comedy and adult drama. Um, you know, he did Vice, the one about Dick Cheney that was, I don't know, I thought it was a curious film. I, I kind of liked it actually. I think uh, Christian Bell is fantastic as Cheney. Um, but it lo- left a lot of people unhappy and it was kind of off-putting for me. But uh, Adam McKay is always interesting. So I think that covers it up. Uh, we Busy busy weekend in 2016, uh, a lot going on in cinema, very mixed and miscellaneous group of films we brought up. So let's get into the film of the episode, Race. So Race is something that I've seen the poster up quite a bit. And I've heard about here and there, I know murmurings, 
of who Jesse Owens is, but I don't know too much of the story. So this was kind of cool for me to get a flash tutorial or, or like a, you know, a quick two hour understanding of who Jesse Owens is, his legacy, his career, and his impact on American sports, American history, on racial relations in America, and on our relations with Nazi Germany. So there's a lot going on here. And I am just curious where you're coming to this film from. Did you know about Jesse Owens? Are you also sort of being informed about oh, no. this? Yeah. No, in terms of Jesse Owens, he's, uh, at least for our generation, I would say he's one of the more iconic textbook images you'd see when you study World War II, all the way from you know seventh grade up until your you know junior year, however, however long you're taking history classes. Right. He's the interesting connection of sport that we have to World War II in which we teach. And, and then again, I'm pointing this out. Jesse Owens is a paragraph. I want to be very clear on this. Jesse Owens is a paragraph in the history textbook um, in which we connect, again, the transcendence of sport, the transcendence of Olympia, of Olympia to the greater good or the greater cause of American glory. That's Jesse Owens. That, that is his place in the history textbook in terms of American idealism and the way we, we, we identify the successes of World War II. He is the defier of Hitler. And that's the way it's always written, right? And that's an interesting thing about this movie. And we'll get into more ways depicted. But that's how um, I know Jesse Owens. He is for, and I'm using this, um, not meaning this to be derogatory, but he is the, the Jackie Robbins of our World War II history text in terms of breaking barriers. I like that you compared him to Jackie Robinson because I thought a lot about Chadwick Boseman and him uh, representing Jackie Robinson just like a year or two before. Mm-hmm. And that film I've never seen either, but I've seen the trailers and the poster and they have the similar sepia tone. Yeah. And I'm very excited to watch that film now and cross compare them because uh, Stefan James, who plays Jesse Owens, is one of my favorite upcoming actors. He is fantastic in really? Homecoming. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I mean, cut you off because I, I, I wanted to chime in. I had the exact same feeling because I haven't seen um, Jackie Robinson either with Bozeman. But like you said, the, the tone of this movie, which I got to say, I don't like the CGI. I don't like the way the movie looks. I think it, it's a, it's one of the, the flaws in this movie is, is the, uh, is the CGI backgrounds. It does not look real, but that aside, like you said, like this made me want to see Bozeman in this role. Cause I feel like uh, seven James, I, I felt like he was weak in this one, to be honest. And it's maybe it was the writing. Cause I, I don't think there's a whole lot to really, he's a very underspoken character and that's a deliberate attempt on the, on the part of the writing to really not, make him controversial in any way like the controversies spoken even even the controversial moments about this are really identified by characters around him which is interesting and it works it does work but like in terms of like delivery and stuff like that like oh man he, he's kind of a lackluster character there's no charisma for our, our, our central hero and i feel, I feel like it's one of those things i'm talking about with like with bozeman he just naturally has that in terms of voice like even even when he does the voices for these uh what if things even though he's just being t'challa he has this this regality to his voice that is just you know it's 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 it, it, it resonates with you uh, with at least with me as a as an audience, whenever I see Nate, what was that movie we, he was in that we we did for this one? He was in it very briefly. It wasn't draft day. Was it draft day? Yeah, draft day. He's in it very briefly. He was one of the highlights in terms of our connection, like we say, to sport, to to you know, to what he's representing in that movie in terms of our low level athlete who doesn't have representation. He nails that little limited role very well. So, like you said, when you see this and like we know, I already know he's people really rave about the Jackie Robinson movie. Like as kind of like I'd like to see it to compare, but also. What would it be if Bozeman had something like this? And just in terms of like comparing, because I, I do feel like it, I've, I was thinking about that as I was watching it, because I feel like there's not a lot going on in terms of our central character to really draw me in, like to really explicate what Jesse is. 
like just, just for all those reasons I said to really get beyond the textbook Jesse, I felt like he still is in that in that paragraph. Yeah, I, I, I'm on board with that. And just to clarify, uh, the Jackie Robinson movie is 42. Um, I, I was able to find it. So it's his number. I knew it was a number. I just wasn't sure yeah. which one. So I, I refrained from saying it. So 42 and it came out in 2013. So it came out just three years before this. So wow. definitely in a close time period. And they both have, uh, I'm looking at it right now, that sepia tone and that, that, that same kind of fake dated look. And I agree. I think that's one of the, the main flaws of this film is the aesthetic uh, stylizations of uh, more like the cinematography than, than the actual stylizations. Um, there's actually some cinematic techniques I liked and I look forward to extrapolating on those a little bit later, but quickly about Stephen James and his acting, because you touched upon that. I agree. I think that he's a weak link in this film to a degree, but I think his character is very flimsily written. He's also a little weak in the, if a Bill Street could talk, which is Barry Jenkins, follow-up to Moonlight. And that's a fantastic movie. It's gorgeous to look at, but there's something just icy about the characters. And in this film, he has a similar distance from me. Like I'm not fully brought in. I know the beats they're trying to hit, him and Jason Sudeikis. I know the charisma they're trying to build, the kind of one-liners, the slow building of intimacy. And it works in fits, but always with like an asterisk in my mind, where it's just like, I know what you're trying to do and you're not succeeding. This is not the shot. Like, this is not the cut. Like, where's the cut? Where's the edit that works? And I feel like I haven't seen a film in a long time where I saw its potential so close yet subtly miss constantly. Yeah. And like you brought in, I'm glad you brought in Jason Sudeikis because I think it's, it's the combination of the two. Cause like, we can't help but watch this now. Like we both watched Ted Lasso, right? Um, this is my first time watching this movie. So Jason Sudeikis, this coach role coming as the iconic now, Ted Lasso. Let's be real. Everyone loves Ted Lasso, the coach. Coach Lasso is cool as fuck, right? But like Coach Lasso is, is many things, right? It's this really nuanced, robust role, right? Where he can be both endearing and still motivating, not frightening, but authoritative. This movie, though, is where, where I see, if I would have seen it at the time, I would have seen this as Jason Sudeikis transitioning from, even though he's, he's long past this, from still that Saturday Night Live, the one with him and Jennifer Aniston, let's beat whatever, right? That kind of comedy role that he's really known for. Um, and that transition is not really abrupt, but it doesn't ring in the areas where it can, right? There's, there's areas where he's supposed to bring comedic levity to this plot. And then something he's really good at, Jason Sudeikis is a funny dude, but he doesn't deliver in this. Right, these spots, these spots that could be funny in a movie that's like it's a serious movie, but it's not like it's not so like hitting you over the head with a pan serious. Like it's not like Indian Horse. It's not like Remember the Titans serious, even though it's still dealing with racial tensions and these and these uh, same racial themes. But the way they're dealing with them, they're not the the stakes aren't risen. Even though we're t- like we said, we're talking about Hitler and World War II, the stakes aren't risen enough in terms of the racial tension that the characters go through, yet alone Jason Sudeikis portraying himself as a coach, right? You say it's all that stuff being built up. It doesn't really like land. It's just, it's like kind of like bad casting, I think on that, in that, in that regard. Yeah. I think that this is a weird liminal space. Like it's a, a transitional phase for Jason Sudeikis where it's very funny to watch this after just binging Ted Lasso so much because he is doing a little bit, Scratch that. He's not doing Ted Lasso at all. But I see the people who created Ted Lasso seeing this film and seeing the potential for Ted Lasso. That's it. This is going for seriousness with a little bit, like you said, a good word, levity, right? He has that usual levity and he's kind of leaving his smarminess. So the beginning of, uh, for me, Jason Sudeikis' career, his comedic career, right? Like 
from Colossal to Horrible Bosses and, you know, all his comedies. He was like the king of sarcasm and smarminess. He was kind of the smart aleck, the smart ass. Um, and I loved it. I actually think he he kills it at that. But, you know, I think he was getting a little pigeonholed in typecast for a bit. And so I think this is an interesting film. It is in some ways, uh, it sounds way too harsh. It's not a failure, but it's a misfire, I think. He's he's yeah. not great in this. I um, mean, he's not awful in this. He's backed by a pretty weak script or just like a little bit of an outmoded script. It's just playing on a lot of tropes that we see coming from a mile away. They're all yeah. telegraphed. And- Sorry, yeah. man, but like, unfortunately, his coaches, the background coach story here is we just talk about racing movies and the coaches are kind of interesting in the racing movies. Like they could be their own movies if they really wanted to be. We don't really need like Prefontaine to make a movie about the dude who, make, who made Nike, right? It could literally be about the dude, like Prefontaine could have a, a cameo, if you want us to call it that, in that type of movie. Um, there's there's so much like in the, between these two movies, I feel like that's a movie in itself. I'm sure it probably has one out there um, for that. But this particular coach that Jason Sudeikis plays, Larry Snyder, even his his trauma, right? We got to have that for lack of a better word. Like that's that is definitely a cliche in the racing movies and and in coaching in general and sports movies. Like the coach with trauma, right? That is definitely a cliche. It's not necessarily a bad cliche. It could be good. Any given Sunday, I think El Pacino's coach is a great example of that cliche, really like fleshed out in an interesting way. But with with this one, it's just it, there's nothing really to his story other than the one thing they have in common is that they both have daughters that they didn't tell each other about. That's how their link is that they're both black and white and they have that in common. That's really, you know, like the depth of his character. We get the story about him and the Olympics and stuff like that. But it's like we say, it's in all those pivotal cliche moments when we have to have coach talk to kid or, or athlete before race to get him pumped up. And it becomes checking the boxes a bit. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's just an unfortunate aspect of the story that I think probably could have been eliminated a bit, but overlooked. But really, let's say Jason Sudeikis probably was one of the bigger stars in this movie. So he's possibly casted just for namesake value, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that a little bit of namesake, I think that they saw potential in the role too. I think that he's an okay fit for the role. It's just, it's a mediocre movie. And so I think <laughs> it just is what it is. I don't know who else could have played this role much better better like there's not a ton of meat on t- on it even though there's a lot of screen time with it oh i but... said michael b jordan dude oh are you talking about uh, uh oh jesse sorry, owens? sorry I, meant, I, meant, I meant jesse owens when we were talking about that but oh. like in terms of uh larry snyder yeah i see what you mean like in terms of like who could push that to to something meaningful oh now you got me thinking who could do that yeah <laughs> now i'm thinking too about a, a better uh jesse owens role than Stefan James. And I think Michael B. Jordan would have been a good choice. I think Stefan James looked really good when he ran. He looked fast, way better than a lot of the other running scenes, especially Chariot to Fire. I kept thinking uh-huh. he legit looked fast, but part of it is the writing, the screenplay. And what really annoyed me about this movie is his role. I don't know if it's true about this time period, but I feel... This is strange. It's like an intuition. I feel like we've we've mythologized certain like stereotypes and archetypes of the past so much that we don't know how they really were back then. We don't engage with the real source material enough. And that's why like something like this is so from left field, but like Ken Burns jazz documentary, which has real life footage from like the 20s and 30s of jazz musicians can be an utter revelation as you start, you suddenly like see like what people really acted like in these time periods, you know, not the Hollywood version of what Mm -hmm. they acted like. And I feel like he is just such a Hollywoodized version of when he's nice, he's too nice. When he's like petulant, he's too petulant. Like, and I mean this for both 
Sudeikis and Stefan James. I feel like they're just too written. They're too sugary and saccharine. And I just don't believe almost any of it. And a lot of the scenes just bug me. Like just to jump towards the end, there's a scene where Jeremy Irons, who's fantastic actually in his small role. I thought Jeremy Irons really held his own. Takes Jesse Owens or Stefan James James playing Jesse Owens to go meet Hitler after he had won a gold medal. Um, first of all, I was thinking, why on earth would he even want to meet Hitler? Very strange. I, I get this might have really happened, though. And we're supposed to feel like Jeremy Irons has his back because he's like fighting Hitler's second man who tells him, you know, a banal excuse that Hitler had to leave early because of traffic or something. When you know, it's, mm. it, there's, a, there's a racial uh, underpinning to this statement, and it's that he doesn't want to meet him because of, because of you, you know, he's racist. He's also um, still right there. You can still see him. Yeah. Uh, in the background. Yeah. Yeah. And Irons has a fit, but I just feel like that scene is utterly humiliating for Jesse Owens. And who is this for? Like, does he really even want to meet Hitler? Why would he want to meet Hitler? He knows Hitler's a fascist. That's the whole context of this story that they don't even really want to go, but they want to compete still because they're athletes. I don't get the moral point of this scene it's almost like background because that's one thing i wish i would have done more historical research because i believe historically like like you're talking about like the footnote is that hitler had left like it shows in the movie i think in the was it the third event right um after he'd won like you know two medals already and i thought that was the big historical like fact if you want to put it that way and i could be wrong on that just throwing it out there and do, do my research been a while since i read my world war ii history textbook but like you said i think it's that coloring of in between the lines of you know what if or you know behind the scenes but like you say what does it serve particularly in the in the context of this one because like the whole strife we have or context or conflict we have internal conflict i want to say right our our internal conflict of our central character right is the black community leaders who don't want him to participate and then his Jewish teammates who later, not at this point, don't want to participate, but support him being on their side and eventually give him their okay to do it. Which again is like, again, which I would, I would do a little more research, but even that one seems very, like you said, too much to the putting in line the pieces of this, of this story, like I said, within that existing historical narrative, which goes to show it's not the most popular narrative other than he's the black racer, uh, racer, race, racer, it sounds like so bad. The, the black runner, you know, who, who showed up and beat Hitler. Right. And that's, and that's what we were celebrating at that time. Um, and again, it's that little like coloring in the lines that like, it sounds, it's a bit of a plan. It sounds like very elaborate just for all the reasons you said, like if he was so just, just like, just to like contextualize, if he was so on the edge for all those reasons to even show up and didn't trust these people. Why would, like you said, why would he go back there? Jesse didn't necessarily seem at that point in the story to be like the yes man, if you will. He's no prefontaine. He's not like fuck the Olympic community, uh, you know, the middle fingers and all that stuff. But we do get these instances. And that's where the flaw is of this movie, like you said, of not fleshing out the character, giving the character a clear ethos, which is where this movie fails. Jesse Owen has no ethos. Ethos is like developed around him and it's tugging him this way and that way. And this is another one where like he has no, no point of view, um, unfortunately, at this time. And so we get this, like you said, it's a conflicting part of the plot coming after all that whole thing of I'm not going to run. Okay, I'm going to run, which is like you just said, I'm defying authority. I'm making my own path. But then I go down the path of the guy who just is like you just said, the corrupt dude who's been portrayed. Like you said, Jeremy Irons is portrayed as corrupt. He comes off as, as you said, he's a rhetorician. He's very good with words. He's working both sides, he's working both sides for his own benefit. Uh, he's not some sort of like race relations uh, guru or anything like that. His his skin in the game's money, um, and that's that. Yeah, definitely. Maybe that's why I liked him a little bit too, is because he was double sided, like two faced. <laughs> so when he was kind of groveling or fawning to like, let's put it this way: when the movie has those scenes where like the white guy acts like they're sticking up 
for African-Americans, right? Uh, and they're trying to like make us feel warm and cuddly. It makes me like annoyed because I just feel like it's overly adulating them, especially when they're kind of complex and icky character at times too. <laughs> and I feel like that scene with Hitler was like trying to get us to like Jeremy Irons character too much. And I just kept thinking like, what a jerk, like just leave it be. Like how awful must Jesse Owens feel in this moment just standing there? Cause they kept showing him standing there awkwardly. That kind of just really bugged me. It was just like patting the self on the back. This like when people always talk about like, like the white savior movies, but it kind of felt like a version of that. And there's many scenes of this movie that do feel like that. I do appreciate that Jason Sudeikis' scenes were written that way a lot of times, but he kind of made it understated. He did a good job of making it okay. I liked how he tried to, he treated Jesse Owens, you know, Larry Snyder, his character treated Jesse Owens as an equal in a way that like, he didn't give him any like glowing speeches about like how he accepted him or not. He just kind of accepted him and looked at him as a, as an equal, like it was just unspoken. And I think that's much stronger than these scenes where it's like, they try to like bring it to the forefront and make us cheer, mm -hmm. which, which actually make me recoil when they just like show people being compatible and working on the same team and just recognizing the essential humanity and autonomy and, and independence and power and individuality of each other. Then I, then I get excited and kind of, then I get warm and, and fuzzy inside. Uh -huh. And so those were the scenes that, that worked more for me. That said, there were two scenes in this film that really, really uh, I thought were well done and interesting and like extremely creative. The first one was in the locker room when Jesse Owens is kind of being picked on by the football players and told he has to leave. They're very racist. And Jason Sudeikis sticks up for them. I really liked what they did when he's trying to teach Jesse Owens how to cut out the noise. And they make really interesting cinematic decisions where they heighten the volume, they they change the cuts. There's like a three second period where it looks really ugly and wrong. So they kind of misses it one second. I'm like, oh, that didn't work. But what they did to try to to try to recreate sort of a chaotic environment, the mental anxiety that that creates and the difficulty to be able to silence it. And then having Sudeikis standing there completely recalcitrant to the football coach who is just red in the face and yelling at him and all the football players who he just insulted, like surrounding him and not only explaining his point to Jesse Owens, but embodying it. Right. And then Jesse Owens sitting there realizing the message and also zoning it out. And then the movie cutting out the sound to see him kind of his breakthrough in uh -oh. learning how to zone out the noise, which is sad that it's a reality, but it is a, it is a triumph of the will and it's, it's a heroic effort and it's a win, right? To be able to do that. And it's, it's one of the hardest things in life to do is to be able to just shut out the external noise. And uh, just to go really quickly to Jackie Robinson, again, everyone knows that that was one of his greatest abilities, which is a testament to his, to his tremendous will was his ability to shut out the noise, right? Um, uh, he constantly dealt with shit throughout his career and he just persevered. He just kept he kept his head and his vision yeah. straight. Um, so anyways, I love well, that scene. What did you think about that? One? Well, you bring up a good point because that's one of the best thing it does. It really highlights sound in that one scene, but it doesn't do a good job of, like you said, portraying an authentic view of what it would be like to be an African-American trying to win over a racist crowd. Like, you know what I mean? Like the use of the N-word and the subtleties of racist commentary and stuff like that you hear from the crowd is so basic and non-cutting of the skin. And I mean that like in the way that it doesn't want to offend, which is what that taunt would do. And that's one of the things I have trouble with this. It's not, it's, it's, it's doing the opposite of like fucking uh, what Tarantino did 
with um, Django Unchained, really clashing the language of racism and really putting it up a front, right? What we get with um, American History X. You know, there's so many great movies you can really go down the line of, you know, the language, the actual language of racist, racist rhetoric and way that, like, just like you said, like, you know, what that would be like to really inflict that. And that's one of these things that shies away from it so hard because it gives you that great scene where it's in the locker room, but it's all still shuttered in the outside. All that hate and all that stuff still very blurred. It's very filtered to get you to Sudeikis, right? Which works like, it works, like you said, uh, on a sensory level, but on a visceral level, um, it's very Remember the Titans-ish, right? And I mean that as a, as a slight, right? When we talk, like, we heard anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, like, to me, Remember the Titans is, is like the cliche textbook allegory of racism that just doesn't work, um, right? It's, it's a story that's mythologized and because it's mythologized so much, it's become this pill for racism, essentially. Um, and that's where this movie dangerously gets to. Because it doesn't want to take any chances at all. Like I just want to point out, it's one of those areas where it really could take a chance. Just like coming back to the scene in Germany, Germany's a very friendly place for for, for Jesse Owens, right? And it's just one of those areas where like, I just don't buy that. Considering like the way it, it, like the way we encounter um, what should be standard knowledge of uh, World War II and you know the Third Reich uprising, all that stuff, right? It's that's sprinkled throughout there, like with Jason Sudeikis encountering like you know some Jews losing their property and being taken away. But like, that's the other thing, like, that's just completely absent of this movie. And I didn't even check what's the rating on this. Oh, the rating, I think it's PG-13. Yeah, I feel like it didn't push the bar, even though, like you said, PG-13, you can't really push it too far. But I still feel um, it just didn't really, like, as you said, that concoction of real racism. And just when you, that's such a pivotal moment, it really missed on something there. Really, unfortunately, what we call racist chirps in, in the sports arena. And this is something that, you know, athletes still deal with today across all sports, like from soccer to hockey. There's that one... Um, Hockey incident, I forgot his player. He's playing in the KHL recently, who um, one of these racist, racist players uh, actually, actually taunted him with a banana gesture, like completely racist. Um, I don't even think the guy's even been fined or anything like that. Last I heard, he hadn't faced any discipline and actually like retracted his statement, unless I, as I recall. But right, it's something that really is something you face today. Um, and it's one of those missed opportunities. That's just one thing that really, it's, it sticks out when you watch this as, a, as an allegory. Yeah, definitely. That UHL player who like peeled the banana mm-hmm. or whatever, he tried to say that it wasn't a gesture of like racism, which was completely yeah. facetious. And I believe the player who was insulted is on strike and not playing. Yeah. And they still haven't done anything, which is insane to me. It just shows how some links are very behind. When but I'll say it is Russia and Russian hockey is anyone who knows is fucking the wild, wild east. You want some crazy stories like um, be, like uh, beyond the untold story of the thrashers, the trashers, trashers are cool. Anyone who caught that Netflix documentary, but uh, yeah, Russian hockey's next level corrupt. Yeah. And Jordan's referencing the Danbury trashers from the untold <laughs> okay. series on Netflix. We are going to hella cover that. I hope soon. Oh, uh, we're, we love those. We're going to, those are coming up. So back to race of the film. I agree. Um, I think that everything is sure coded and diluted. What also truly bugged me was like, he shows up in the the stadium and, you know, everyone's yelling slurs and they're, they're, they're jeering him a little bit. You see that like, there's a few quick shots of the crowd after he wins like two races, they're completely on his side. They're cheering him on. I noticed, you know, the only people that aren't on his side still are uh, the, like, we don't really see Hitler much. We just see, he doesn't ever, he never talks actually. If yeah. I'm not mistaken. We see one of his secondhand men, the guy, I guess who's like running, the, uh, Goebbels. Yes. I pronounce that wrong. Like the yes. prime minister, if I remember right. Yeah, the prime minister Goebbels, played by Barnaby Metcherat. And 
I thought he was fantastic. Actually, he yeah. was really gets under your dude. This dude plays team. like Nazi Nazi. Like you know what I'm talking about. Like fucking Indiana Jones. Like Schindler's List. Like he he, he would have fit in fine in Schindler's List. Like we're gonna go through like the Nazi criterion of Nazi movies. He'd be like casting an up in upper level Nazi hood for sure. He was he had Third Reich written all over him. Absolutely. And what I actually appreciated too was as much as he was up in the pantheon of of those great sinister insidious actors. He had a different, unique style and tone to him, too. Hmm. There was something even more unlikable and just just made me like... Oh, it's his demandingness to translate and to translate with such vigorous insult and to want her to say that. You know, she's not going to, but he'd, he'd never correct or anything like that. Like you say, it's like, it's both like sexist. It's like, it's like the worst of the worst, like racist, all that shit. And, and like you said, he's also very like refined and not necessarily polite, but not impolite. Yeah, his subtle hostilities were, were articulated very well in this movie. Yes, I love that. All his rejoiners were filled with such invective, right? They were mm-hmm. so searing. And I like that dynamic. They played that really well. So the translator usually is Lenny Reifenstahl, who we mm-hmm. have to talk to as well. But before we get into her, I love all those scenes. There's so many scenes between Avery Brundage, played by Jeremy Irons, and Goebbels, played by Barnaby Medcherat. And there are foes. They do not like each other. But they're also sort of business partners, they're enemies, and they need each other because they both want the Olympics to happen and they both have their their irreconcilable demands, right? Because mm-hmm. Goebbels does not want Jewish or African-American athletes to compete. Brundage demands it. And so we get the back and forth between the mm-hmm. two. They consistently throw just the most scathing insults at one another and the way the grace in which the translation happens on the spot, of course it's written, is just fun. I thought it was really well done. I love that. That's one of the better, um, just for sake of context and setting, because that's, that's one thing I don't like about this movie is the settings, like the actual furnishing of sets. Some of it's just off to me. Um, it just seems like low budget in a movie that doesn't seem to be low budget, if I put it that way. It's not like a low budget film, but like some of these sets, and like I said, I already mentioned like the CGI, but the scenes where like literally just Nazis are eating dinner, right? And these high-end clubs and stuff like that. It's like a uniqueness that uh, you, you see in other movies and stuff like that. We've seen this in um, Inglorious Bastards has a great scene with the Nazi dining hall, right? But this one's a little more um, casual and really like normalizes it in a way that other movies don't quite do. Where just, it's not just Nazis, it's just upper-class people and it's their kind of country club. Um, they all know who this guy is. The way he stands up when he leaves is very Darth Vader-ish. I, always, I, I kind of dug that. But there's just like this casualness to the environment that I like. It's like, it's what we talk about today when we, why we don't which is a common thread, right? Common th- thread, I think, across the history is fascist governments getting like the biggest, you know, the biggest stage in the world and, you know, reasons why and what they do to cover it up. And this is one of those interesting ones where you see before they cover it up how normalized this section is compared to the outside world. I really like that just juxtaposition between the banners outside on um, the racist propaganda, what it looks like after probably like after Crystal Knock, I'm guessing, right? Very much again, the, again, that's a good like history indicator, like going back to like the, one of the things it does well, I will say, if you're looking at the history check marks. Um, there's are some moments there, like you said, in, in the brief pantheon of World War II uh, history textbooks, you can see those check marks being checked off, like I mentioned, like that. But I do like that's one of the underlying themes that is just kind of brushed aside, unfortunately. Um, it kept, we come back to it at the end with a little cool like post note about how, um, what's his name, Avery Brundridge, basically, like, as you said, he worked with the Nazis to put on the event, make a bunch of money, pass through the scandal, fine. He, he was the head of the Olympic Committee, like well into the 70s, right? And within that time in the 70s, like we could talk about all the different other fascist 
governments that we're going to host the Olympics and we're told not to. And like when you look at today, right, with China and Russia and, you know, and what goes on behind the scenes, it's very interesting, um, just dynamic, you know, what the Olympics and cleaning up and all that shit, like we talked about with um, Tokyo Olympiad, right? Something that's not necessarily shown in that one. This one gives it briefly, but I think it does it pretty well. Yeah, the settings looked really fake a lot. And I got excited a few times, like the Olympics or like most of the stadiums are built in, they even say it on the screen, Tempelhof Park or airport facility, which actually becomes like the Nazis main center for like military planes in uh, the, the world war to come. And I've actually spent a full day there in Berlin. It's a really weird place now. It's filled with like hippie gardens and bicycle riders and frisbee throwing it's just like this huge, like san francisco yeah it's like san francisco it's this huge like bohemian park now where all the berlin kids go hipsters go and eat pizza and drink wine so very strange like set to like and i did uh, not know this then but like i mean a lot of berlin is you know has links to to, to nazi architecture or you know fascist uh, historical periods but i did not know just how linked it was until I watched this movie. So that was interesting for me. Um, As you were talking, I started to feel like I got at a few of the things that bugged me about this movie. And it's like, what is the intention, right? Jesse Owens was a man who defied the odds. He defied the historical trends. He was stuck in a hard place and just competing and enduring and winning in, in that environment is a tremendous accomplishment, right? That said, they don't give us enough of the power behind that to really feel like we understand his accomplishment. I mean, they give us a little bit of the text at the end, but we really don't see enough of what he had to overcome to compete in the Nazi Olympics. Yeah. At that level. Even with the injury, because like I want to go through the sports cliches like we like to do on this. Like that is the total race cliche is the injury game, right? That's not necessarily a sports cliche. It is, but like in racing movies, like across all the ones we've seen, you have to injure your foot usually jumping on something, sometimes drunk, um, right? That seems to be the cliche or or, that, or if you're prefontaine, depends like who's directing it. It might be something different, right? But then somehow you're going to hurt your fucking foot if you're a good runner, right? And it's always before a big race. But this one, right, it shows him winning and we don't hear shit about the injury ever again. It, it shows up like, dude, you can't run today, man. He's like, no, coach, I'll run. And he just, sl- he just slays the shit out of everybody and he's off into the sunset and the movie just goes on. And I, I remember I was literally watching, I was like, I thought, he was hurt. Like in Prefontaine, we get the cool running, but we get the sock of blood, which I think we see in both of those previous movies we see, right? There's these indicators of like of great suffering, physical damage, wear and tear, like those those big indicators of, of athletic glory, right? And this one, it does, it just drops it. And I felt like it, it was like, to me, it's just such an obvious drop because we watch so many of these movies. I'm like, oh, we got our cliche. I'm like, all right, he's going to hurt his foot. We're going to get that cool ass race where it's going to be like, this is going to be the one where it hurts. And it just didn't hurt. He just, he slayed it so much. And I was like, I didn't know what to do with it. I felt like it missed the cliche. It had a chance to do something with the cliche and it just kind of it didn't deliver. Yeah, it was it was kind of brushed aside or skipped over too quickly. And the other thing that annoyed me was the thing about Owen to this is he's like a preternatural talent from the get-go, right? There's never really any doubt that he could win. Like he's already hitting the world record times the second he shows up at Ohio State. And I feel like they confabulated and manufactured a lot of drama that just didn't need to be there. And it just felt that way because of it. Like it was contrived. The whole thing about working another job. um, It was kind of cool to see like Larry Snyder, like get him a little side gig as a page. Right. But it was just to me inconsequential because I was like, this dude is just an, 
he's just the best. Like, don't even go into this story. It's not necessary. Yeah. Like, we don't need this part of the story. Let's just focus on the more essential elements. And, and like you said, like the last three racing movies you watch, like the idea of getting money outside of racing is a huge deal. And these movies spend a lot of time on it. Like you pointed out, it's, it's, it's a footnote in this movie. Um, it's really just to get these two characters aligned. Like, I don't know the historical thing about his his work life or how he got through racing or anything like that. But it seemed really weird to me that a black dude in 1933 had it, not I'm going to say easier, but had something set up that isn't worth exploring. Like, it isn't complicated. You know what I'm saying? Like, there isn't something there that can add to the myth or debunk the myth, right? Which is what this movie is, is really lacking. The only thing I learned from this movie that I didn't know in that history paragraph is that Jesse Owens had a baby mama. That's the only thing I like, you know what I'm saying? Like everything else is very much needs lots of fact checking. If I want to like rely on this uh, as anything other than, you know, if I want to rely on this historical accuracy, but everything else is kind of added in here to flesh out our character, to build that mythos is really not much. Exactly. And what did Jason Sudeikis actually teach him? Like there is one thing I can say that, that was cool. Like the whole aerodynamic start. So I believe it was chariots of fire. We got like that big sequence about how to end a race. And this one, we get a kind of cool training montage of how to like start a race really low and try to stay as low as possible. So you mm -hmm. take a lift off like an airplane, right? Besides that, Sudeikis gave a lot of like moral aphorisms and quippy one-liners. And he kind of opened up as a human being to him. So that I believe they on a fictional level, developed a companionship. Yeah. But I just don't see the function of, of Larry Snyder at all. What, he seems like a total... Like what you said, sorry, it goes to... Unfortunately, it goes to the white savior thing. There's a more interesting relationship is the one that's not explored, that's more explored in our other movies, is a teammate relationship, particularly him and his black teammates, who have all sorts of, as we see, just confrontational experiences that are, are dropped again. But like you said, that's one of the weakest elements of it because it does become a white savior story in that aspect. When we look at all our other racing movies, and the, one of the better ones have really given us the team element outside of racing. I, I can't name what any of his other teammates do, like what sport they play, what's their role, other than when they do the relay race. Um, and that's that's it. And it's, it's, it is a problem. Because like we said, you can have a movie like Prefontaine that can, that we said was, I believe we said underrated, I don't remember. But right. But either way, to be my point though, it can, it can cover a lot of ground in a meaningful way, even if it doesn't hit it all off, off the park, but it can hit enough to give you something to think about. It's something, something more to consider. And I felt like you said that all it wants you to consider, unfortunately, is that black and white dynamic. And it, interestingly, it misses like the community of, of, of black people in this movie, because the only other community comes in is to tell him not to run. And it's very short. And his family is very is was one of the better characters. I would say his father, whoever plays, uh, I got to give his father a shot. Actually, he plays a very stern male figure. But he, again, only has a few lines in here really amplifies what, what's lacking in terms of these other existing relationships that just need a, just a little bit more of a highlight. And I feel like a lot of the other movies we saw before this actually did that better. The dynamic you bring up between like Jesse Owens' father and the NCAAP, right? And mm -hmm. the philosophical and ethical dilemma of whether to compete or make a political statement is very, very topical, but, but very powerful. It's still like, I think a debate we haven't sorted out as a culture. Oh, totally. And I feel like that should have been the crux of the film and would have made a much more intriguing film. Because it's one that I, I constantly grapple with myself and I oscillate between. I tend to actually side with his father and whether it's uh, an athlete 
or an artist. I just don't understand the instinct to self-sabotage to make your point when you can make your point by performing at your, at your highest level and in, in still making the same statement through excellency. I think that the statement can be made both ways. So I don't see why you would take the former route instead of the latter route. But I do understand the power and potency that you can make as well by protesting and refusing to participate. So it, it was an intriguing dilemma. And the father brings up a good point that if he does back out or refuse to compete, especially in 1933, as I can imagine, it's not 2020 where it's going to get media. Like no one's going to care. Yeah. He's just going to lose his chance. So I, I, w- I would like to yeah. see that explored more too. Like what were the NCWIP really thinking? Like, did they have his interests at all into consideration? It seemed like such a selfish move to go over there until this super not to go pursue his dreams to make a point that yeah. is probably going to fall on deaf ears and be moot anyways. It's what you're talking about. Um, to carry on with your point, it's speaking more towards a modern audience of people who've existed in a world where all these barriers have already been broken. And because all these barriers have been broken, you have the agency to make points by not playing. In 1933, that's not a fucking reality. Your goal is to break barriers. You're not even using that fucking terminology, breaking barriers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just like, just throwing that out there. Yeah, I get what you mean. Like, I'm not going to say it wasn't a thought in his mind. Like he's not conflicted with the idea of what's going on over there or that, but the idea that you're training to be an Olympic athlete and this is going on in the world and all that, the idea that it throw off your thing suddenly, like you're like, I agree with you. It's, it's more for a today audience to check off the books of this character is morally round. This character is philosophically informed. This character is politically informed. This character reads the newspaper. I don't fucking know if Jesse Owens read the goddamn newspaper for all I know. He didn't know shit about world war two. And quite frankly, he's a fucking runner. I don't give a shit if he knew about world war two, but it's, it is, it's a check a box. Make me like Jesse Owens more than I really, in a way, I really don't need to. Because like I said, he already filled that role in the paragraph. He already broke the fucking barrier. But again, it, it ties more to, like you said, a culture of today of people who come after barrier breakers and have pivoted. Like you said, there is a value to it. I'm with you. I'm conflicted about it. But there is a value to it. But there's also, like, as we discussed on the podcast, a real consequence of people who come after us. Like we talked about Muhammad Ali, who will lose his titles for someone who comes after barrier breakers and still breaking barriers. He was still considered a barrier breaker. But only 30 years, 20, 30 years after he broke that barrier and, and lost lots of money, fame, all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, you know, it's it's it's, it's a problem. But for the sake of this movie, I, I agree with you. It's, it's stretching this thing a little too far. So I do appreciate the father's line, though, where he says it won't make a difference. Do what you want, pretty much, right? That sounds something I would have rang more true, but that probably would have been the ethos anyways, is what I point. That ethos would have been the ethos of the sun. It don't matter what you do. Like White America don't like you. Germans don't like you. You're in it to run. You're in it to get that medal. That's that. And like you said, like it, it, it's such a weird thing because it, it's trying to set him up as like such a, a pioneer in the um, in the civil rights movement, essentially, is what it's trying to do. But if you look at his life, even in the footnotes, that's not a mention of, of Jesse Owens. I'm not trying to say Jesse Owens isn't a civil rights leader. He's like not an activist. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is he's an athlete who's known, as again, for being a black athlete who, who won the four gold medals. But again, like the, what that scene's doing is not what he really is. And that's where I agree with you. It's too didactic. Yes, that's a good point. Too didactic. And we constantly want to put an intention sometimes into people who break down barriers that's not there. Perhaps they just broke down a barrier and made a difference because they did what they loved. Mm -hmm. That's okay. I feel like this was here to let us know that this was consciously on his mind, which it had to have been to a degree. Like he's going to Nazi Germany to compete. Mm -hmm. He is aware of the immense discomfort that that just intrinsically has embedded within it, right? That task. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't have to be going for it to make this monumental statement, or he doesn't have to even 
have this debate that doesn't feel like it's, I, I can't say this for a fact, I need to look more into it, but it doesn't feel like it's actually right for the time period. And I, I, I think this is a, almost a very dubious historical recreation that feels like it was shoehorned in the script to be topical at the same time. So while I think it's interesting and more interesting than a lot of the narratives in the story, it doesn't ring true to me in many ways mm. because it, it feels true for today. It doesn't show, feel true for then. And I don't get why he's equivocal at all because he's not going to make a splash as we've already aforementioned a few times. Mm. And so it's very clear that his statement is to go and force people who are bigoted and behind and regressive to recognize his humanity. And if they don't want to, to at least confront with the fact that they are inferior at something they value directly, which he forced them to do by going to the, the Olympics and competing. So it's just such a clear cut, obvious decision mm-hmm. that it didn't Particularly have... in the context of America, you exist in a world where the very people around you have that same mentality about you. So it's not a foreign concept in the, in the, in the realm of the Olympics. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you encounter racism all the time in all of its forms, it's another form of racism. And it's one of those things, again, of us as an outside culture looking in with, you know, decades of time between, like you said, say, it's applying too much uh, modern terms to it. Yeah, it's uh, also very similar to uh, One Night in Miami, which I loved. I still haven't seen that, actually. It's fantastic. And it took a really, really sophisticated and nuanced and uneasy direction where it leaves you with no easy answers. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the film ends up being Sam Cooke versus Malcolm X. There's Sam Cooke who just wants to be an artist and do his thing and and make his statement that way. And, you know, there's Malcolm X, who's the politicized version, right? Who's constantly, you know, scheming. That, that, that's his artistry, right? His politics. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other individual in the mixture too, which I think is very key, but doesn't actually serve as dynamic of a role in the film. That's Muhammad Ali, right? Mm-hmm. And Muhammad Ali, in some ways in One Night in Miami, is shown as a little bit of a pawn to Malcolm X. And he is basically the puppet, and Malcolm X is a puppeteer, using him for his ends, whether... Uh, that's religious or civil rights uh, gains in, in American public. And Sam Cooke is very, you could tell, suspicious of that and skeptical of that. And here's a similar thing, I think, between Stefan James' character, Jesse Owens, and his father and the NCAAP, right? And yeah. it's it's the artistry, the athlete versus the, politi- the, the political. The context aside, I think that both of those tackle that very well. Even another thing is Jay Balvin, the, I think he's from Columbia, the Colombian pop star. He's kind of goofy as like a McDonald's meal. He has a really interesting documentary where he goes home to play the biggest show of his career. And Columbia is embroiled in a political nightmare and everyone wants him to speak out. And he's just like, I'm not informed. I'm not speaking out on this either Mm -hmm. way. And it just builds and builds and builds. And what I gathered from that is I I don't know if he was right or wrong to not speak out, but the demand, the decree, the mandate the insistence that he must speak out or he was a you know her heretical agnostic uncompassionate asshole uh-huh. was incensed and that to me is mob mentality and he showed to me so much more tremendous maturity and will to not just give in to that demand because it could have been so easy mm-hmm. for jay balvin so easy he wouldn't have lost anything to just be on which he he kind of does and he kind of loses a little bit because it just got so overwhelming, but he stuck out for a long time, just being like, I'm an artist, 
I don't know this stuff. I'm not speaking out. I don't know the repercussions of my actions, even though they seem very faddish right now to speak out. Yeah. Right. Cause it's obviously like some kid got killed at a protest by like the government. It seems bad, but he's just like, I don't know the context. I don't know the scene. I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. I'm not the expert on this. Yeah. And so, you know, I get that most people are like, use your power, use your platform. And that's the message of the movie. Like you have to use your platform. And we've talked about this a few times and we know kind of where I stand, but I think this tackled it again. Oh, definitely. And like you said, it becomes, um, it comes at an interesting part of this movie too, because like for all those reasons we discussed, there's a lot of that's absent. And then it's kind of dropped for our, our third act pretty much. Um, right. So it's kind of what sends us in there with the motivation, which again is a pretty sports cliche. Usually the motivation comes from the other team beating you, right. We think we see in all these movies, this isn't a team sport in that, in that traditional sense. So it is interesting. That it comes from like this kind of, like you said, like existential threat kind of thing as the uh, catalyst. It's not necessarily highlighted too much, but it is there. I should say, what else do you want to highlight in terms of this movie? Yeah. Well, I think we need to talk a little bit about Lenny Reifenstahl too. Definitely. Yeah. You know, we've done Tokyo Olympiad, right? And she made a major role in here. And I think she gets way too nice of a depiction. They are very hagiographic of her. They, they make her seem like she's insubordinate to mm-hmm. her masters that, you know, she sets up the camera and films Jesse Owens the day after so that he she's can an have- artist. She's oblivious to, you know, the hate and, you know, the corruption and just, you know, the absolute bigotry around her. She's capturing the art of it all. It's like, and then that's really what they like portray her as. Right. And like you said, she becomes an ally in this. Like she has, uh, she's going to capture Jesse Owens' race when he's, she's not supposed to. But I agree with, with you. The way she's cast is very, um, it's an interesting light given her actual role in the Third Reich. Yeah, it's really interesting because she was mainly Hitler's propagandist. Like yeah. she was huge influence in spreading the propaganda. And so <laughs> it's strange to see her so well portrayed, but also it's interesting throughout history to hear many people really like her. When we did Tokyo Olympiad, you know, the director, Ichikuru, loved her. Like huh. he spoke in glowing terms about her. I mean, people absolutely love her artistry. Oh, it's like Wagner. Yes. Perhaps she did straddle this weird territory of like, you know, I'm an artist. This is my community, my world. I can't beat it. So I'm going to just work within the system and try to do what I can and try to fight to win the little wins that I can win. I don't know. This is what I'm just. It's such a Schindler's List story, though. That's one thing I thought about her. She's very much like Schindler's List, where she's like this insider with the Nazis. And like like you said, based on history, it's kind of like it's it's very much given her a type of like kudos that she probably doesn't deserve, to be honest. But because she's one of the very few female characters in this movie, it seems like it's almost like weirdly, again, with the modern audiences throw it out there it's like you can't make this character as evil as she really was possibly you know what i mean like you throw that word evil out there but let's be honest she's like fucking third reich hierarchy nazi like if she was in inglorious bastards she would have been that group of goebbels that need to be taken out like to win the war you know what i mean like it's, yeah. it's like on that level in terms of like you said the propaganda machine behind it all and like that's one of the things i liked about that scene though with the uh dinner and seeing the modernity and like how modern everything is even though this is you know 70 plus years behind behind us I, th- I think that's one of the things it doesn't do with her character though. Yeah. And I-, I like that they brought up a lot of points about like cinema and posterity and legacy, mm-hmm. right? She gets in an argument where, you know, they've taken the cameras off the last race and she's in this back and forth for Tot with Goebbels. And she's basically like saying like, I, I'm the person who's running this film and this thing won't be remembered without this footage. So like I'm more important than anything, um, which I liked. It's kind of like, 
a wink to like the power of cinema within cinema. I always yeah. love those things. And just her her explanation and to Jesse Owens, who was getting annoyed at having to do the jump for the camera multiple times of the power of what capturing this, what would be very manufactured moment would be what's cool. I like those. I don't know if they really fit in the movie, but I like that. Mm. But but getting back to the, the the real meat of our discussion here is that it's a really interesting, it's kind of aloof, I think, and arrogant for us to critique every single German. This is that's true. In that period, just because they're German in that period. Because the fact is, like societies are extremely collectivist and conformist to various degrees. And there's a lot of, I say pressure in the most like loaded and nuanced way as I possibly can. Like sometimes you, you people are going to fight in whatever way they can, but they can't really fight without like, I guess, death. And, you know, there's, there's a really heroic resistance, like let's say the last Terrence Malick film about someone who just would not participate in any way and just, just refused unto death. And they died and all they had to do was, you know, comply and they'd be fine. Right. But for the vast majority of the public, they're going to fall somewhere more in the middle of the spectrum. Mm. And it's very easy for this to happen to cultures again and again, like Japan, Japan culture was the same in this time. Mm. And are all Japanese that lived between like 1930 and 1950 evil? I don't think so. Like, so like, it's a weird that we like can retrospectively depict an entire culture as evil just for living then unless they literally gave away everything including their life to fight a system that was more powerful than they were right are we evil because we give into capitalism every day right because we do we give into it every single day we capitulate again and again to lots of very insidious things that are probably degrading the planet as we speak (laughs) and how will we be judged in the future right the same way (laughs) yeah Obviously. 100% the same way as the Germans. We, we, we totally like, like, just like, just like you said, we'll, we'll totally be judged like that. And like, probably like just for all those reasons you said, probably for rightful reasons, because we follow this, the same pattern. So it is a fair, in a weird way, it's a fair and unfair judgment. I agree. <laughs> I, I have the same, I have this thought myself all the time, particularly when we talk about, you know, how we handle the pandemic. I'm a history dude and like, we laugh at history and I'm always like, we're going to be, we're the pigeons. We're going to be like, kids are going to be laughing at us as these fucking idiots. <laughs> like, these dudes can't even read a history book and do the same thing. I, I digress, but like, I, I agree with you though, hundred percent. Like we're laughing at this period and we're already being laughed at by the generation before us uh, for our fuck ups, for this, for our same group high mentality. So yeah, I agree. It's a, I agree that it's worth pointing out that that's uh, self-awareness for sure. Yeah, no, but I also agree your take, which means that, yes, we could critique them because if we can accept being critiqued, which we deserve, <laughs> then we can critique them too. You know what I mean? So it's like the only thing I don't like is the piety of like, I can yeah. critique them from this like, from this myopic viewpoint that like, I now have it right. Yeah. And that I am not susceptible to the same human inclinations and pressures and yeah. surrenders that, that that they perhaps gave into, you know, and there's agents of evil, which there definitely were that are absolutely abhorrent and worthy 100% uh, unequivocally, right, of critique. And I'm, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about like what, what uh, the very great philosopher Blake, and she calls the banality of evil. Right. And the banality of evil is the person who's just a bureaucrat going along with the flow and letting the machine perpetuate evil. And that is where I think a little bit more where Lenny Reifenstahl fits in this. Mm-hmm. In, uh, she's a very intriguing character. I would love to actually see a film about her. And I would love 
when we get back to the Summer Olympics, because we're in this for the long run, I would love to cover her Olympic documentary. I've heard yeah. it's a seminal film. My parents have seen it and talked about it. One I mean, those ones every- I've seen only in cinema classes, like not the entire thing. It's like segments of it. And like, so like, so like, when we bring it back to this movie, like when you're watching it, it's like you said, it's, it's a cool like meta moment when you see her filming behind the scenes and you're seeing some of those techniques that are like are applauded because they are innovative. It's a reason we can shoot such epics today. There is a the pioneerism to it. Even if you're a history buff or just a film buff for that matter, that's one of the better aspects I think of this movie, just by having that character in there um, and having that kind of overview of, of the voyeurism and the, the capturing of history and all that. It does work thematically. And it's one of the stronger, it's actually one of the few chances the movie takes. When we actually when we, when we talk about this for sure. Agreed. And yes, she didn't only make Olympia part one, which we're talking about a lot, but she also made the very infamous triumph of the will. We all know that. So, I mean, this is a person whose fingerprints are on like some of the most iconic films in cinematic history, right? Like you said, in cinema classes, you're going to learn about Lenny Reifenstahl, but also some of the most blasphemous works of propaganda ever known to man. So (laughs) it's just fascinating how the polarity of this character Shifting one more time back to race, the film itself, there was one uh, cinematic moment and technique that, I mean, I don't think was transcendent or mind-blowing, but it gave me a glimpse of something this film could have been, and I really appreciated it. Um, But it also showed how slapdash and kind of all over the place, the tonal and stylistic decisions were at the same time. But when Jesse Owens first walks out to the Olympic Stadium, right, we have this shot from a tunnel where he's having his last like words with Jason Tudekis' character, right? And then we get complete silence. The camera slowly circles around him, right? It, it moves around him. And we get this very mythic, grandiose entrance that mm-hmm. I felt had such heavy depth. There was so much like pageantry to that scene. I don't know if you even recognize it, but it completely pulled me in for like, I would say two minutes. And it's a long scene. What I loved about it too, was a lot of this movies like cut, shot, talk, cut, shot, talk. It's just like kind of quippy, fast, zippy, uh, normal cinema stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like shot, reverse shot, talking, like there's nothing really going on. Here's a long shot, like two and a half minutes slow, quiet, almost meditative. And it's like the calm before the storm, right? It's the calm before the race. And I thought it was like, wow, where did this come from? (laughs) And where is this film? That's all I thought of like, where I want this film. (laughs) This is the film I want to see. And it was just like, had my mind elaborating on like, Ooh, what could you do with a film like this? And not even like, what can you do, but who Um, has done films like these? Cause people have done these types of films as well. But man, was that, I, I, I love that. And he walks slowly into the track, still quiet. There's a little score going on. He picks up the like, I don't know what to even call it, the little shovel, what they pick up to yeah. put it. And he shovels a thing, puts his foot down and then he complete silent. So oh. it's quiet before, but then it goes completely silent. And I love that. The like weightlessness of the moment and the gravity oh. of the moment equally. I, I think that that, if there was anything that I could take away from this, was just that like two minute shot. I loved it. Um, we had such so. opposite reactions to that shot because like, I agree. They like the sound, like the way it resolves itself. It sounds like we talked about, it sounds cool in terms of just going to silence. But my first thought goes back to the CGI. I was like, this is gladiator. And unfortunately it looks like gladiator. And it's not a compliment because gladiator is old as shit now. And so as I was watching, I was like, I'm like, this is like 2016. And like, I know it's, it's supposed to look like 1945, but I'm like, it looks like 1999 trying to make it look like it's 1945. And I was so fixated on that. 
like I was really honing in on that. So I feel like I lost the obscurity, like, you know, the grandiose of that, of that moment. Cause I was thinking Maximus the whole time. I was like, this is Russell Crowe's entrance. This is us going in, you know, and it's trying to do that. I, I think it's aware of what it's doing with that for sure. But I felt like the, just the look of it was too much like Gladiator, unfortunately, uh, where the, the Coliseum looked too much like a Coliseum of Rome, ironically. And I was like, oh man, I don't know. I'm not buying it. I'm not, I'm not into the set enough. And it was really detracting. It's one of the, one, I think one of the biggest flaws in this movie, unfortunately, is the set, like we said, the setting and the CGI to me just stands out a little too much. Well, well said. I completely agree, believe it or not, even though <laughs> it sounds like we're utterly on the opposite side of the spectrum there. No, I absolutely agree. The heft of it is definitely undermined by the awful CGI. And I kept thinking that to you. I didn't bring that up, but I kept seeing this and like, this is so well done and so ugly to look at <laughs> and so hideous at the, at the same time. I, but I, but I was a little forgiving of that because frankly, like a lot of the sports settings we've seen recently, that's why I like without limits, yeah. by the way, without limits had just like real scenes of like yeah. stadium filled people. Let's talk. Time. Yeah. I, I mean, on no Ted Lasso, a lot is shot during a pandemic where you can't get the crowds, but man, is that the worst CGI crowds too? The, the crowds in Ted Lasso are look like video game crowds they're yeah especially if you're catching like background stuff and like oh, you say, cuts to live crowds are pretty like abrupt oh they're awful though any shot on the pitch in ted lasso is pretty mm-hmm. ugly to look at ted lasso is great for like a sit- situational comedy kind of situational yeah, drama it's like kind of like a soccer at the office or something like it's got a quirky band of characters that are very witty and complex and, and it's great but the sports cinematography in that in that show is ridiculously bad. Um, mm-hmm. It actually both these make me actually appreciate Space Jam two more because at least like <laughs> it fits right. Like it That's fits. True. It like yeah. works. I actually appreciate the insanity of the Space Jam two crowd in comparison. So on that note, I think we're nearing the end. And yeah. where would you rate this one? Uh, would you consider this an underdog or an overrated film? I'm gonna say overrated. And again, with our copy, it's not like a popular film, but this is like, it is it's overrated. It's not the great, as we said, it's not the greatest thing. It's not what I'm going to plan on rewatching. Um, I think there's still a better Jesse Owens movie to be made easily. But again, if you're into racing movies, I would skip this one. I would go with one of these other ones like Prefontaine or uh, I'd, actually I'd say I'd just go with Without Limits over this one. Sadly, I'm on the threshold as well, but I'm going to veer into the overrated territory. Um, this was a hit or miss for me. Uh, I liked just the kind of nostalgic value of like a decent historical drama and, you know, this kind of really awesome all-star cast that we did have, um, whether they were at their A-star game or not is another story. So it was serviceable. I kept thinking that word. I use it too much, but I kept thinking that again and again. It was serviceable. It had some... Some intelligence in the script, but it just didn't sing. It wasn't cohesive. It didn't quite know its direction. It needed like three or four more drafts to really have like an identity crisis and then to find its identity. Like it wasn't quite there yet. And uh, unfortunately, that's, that's my take on this. So without further ado, it's time for our final one of our favorite segments, the reviews. So let's take a look at how it was received by the critics and greater community at large. So I'll let you start off first on Rotten Tomatoes. The tomato meter score is 63% positive and 77% for the popcorn. So we have the tomato, which is a good thing, and the popcorn. So it's one both. It just barely won. Kind of get why. It's kind of just good enough that you're like, oh, it's okay. 
you know, you don't want to shit on this one <laughs> to put it bluntly, <laughs> even though we kind of did at times, but yeah, yeah they're, they're fitting rates. Warranted at times though. So I think I want to start with this one. I'm going to start with a, with a review it comes from Nell Minot. Uh, she's a writer for AWFJ uh, Women on Film. And Nell writes, Race is a long overdue film about Jesse Owens with excellent performances and a thoughtful portrayal of documentarian slash propagandist Lenny Reifenstahl. I do agree it's definitely like a long overdue film. I don't agree with the excellent performances and I'm not as agree with thoughtful portrayal. I'm just going to say it was a portrayal of Reifenstahl. Yeah. And I also think that like she's being overly influenced or coddled by the gimmicks of that depiction but maybe that's just a difference of opinion and sensibility so maybe i'm completely off there but it's weird that you would be so into a thought for portrayal of a propagandist who created some of the most notorious propaganda of all time just because she looks pretty in his hip and you know yeah we didn't even mention she's played by um yeah carice von hooten yeah the Red Queen from Game of Thrones, for those of you who are Game of Thrones fans. Uh, another evil role, right? That's That looks beautiful, but really sinister, right? She, she plays this stuff very well. Yeah, but my problem is they don't have any of the sinister in this movie at all. Like, she's oh, no. just pretty and really savvy at translating things in a way that uh, diffuses the tension mm-hmm. between Goebbels and Jeremy Irons' character, Avery Brundage. And she's all about, like, the power of art. And she's colorblind. I just mean that in the way that like she just sees Jesse Owens as an athlete and as a beautiful runner and long jumper. Yeah, I thought that was a bit strange and actually one noted for that historical figure. I'm not just saying she should completely be disparaged either at all. Um, I think she's probably just deserves like a little bit more of a complex and nuanced treatment. That's it. Um, So I'm going to go right below yours and read Candace Frederick of Real Talk Online's review. And she gave this a C and she said, this film is woefully disjointed, frustratingly removed from its lead character and overly sanitized. (laughs) Fair enough, right? Um, Disjointed, well said. I think I said incoherent at times. I don't think it's quite incoherent. I think disjointed is better. Um, It's coherent. It just has too many elements that don't quite synchronize together. And sanitized, absolutely. It's just watered down. Uh, this one comes from Dwight Brown, who writes for the National Newspaper Publishers Association. Uh, Dwight writes, race is a history lesson, personal profile, and a crowd pleaser. I gotta disagree with those, though. I don't think it's a history lesson at all, as we've discussed on this. I feel like if you're watching this movie for a history lesson, you really need to get a history book first. Uh, I'll just throw that out there. Even as a personal profile, I, I got to say, I think a Wikipedia page would be a good place to start if that's what you're looking for about Jesse Owens. This is not a biography pick by any means. Just throw that out there too. And a crowd pleaser, I don't think it is based on the audience score. It's very hit or miss. So I thought this was an interesting one though. But again, I want to appreciate the conciseness of this review. Just got to point that out. Right on the edge of the crowd pleaser, at least with 77%. But yeah. I completely with you on there. It's a gateway drug for a history lesson. Um, which is what I think film should be a lot of times, right? Hopefully it gives you just enough juice or titillation that you actually go get the history book and read about these individuals um, who I'm sure have way more fascinating lives than what is presented to us Mm -hmm. on screen in this film. It's a very cursory personal profile that is kind of fitting in a one-size-fit-all template. 
So yes, I'm with you on that. So I'm going to move to the side and I'm going to go for the splat again. I'm, I'm all for the negative reviews on this one. And I'm going to read Sarah Michelle Fetters, cool name, uh, from moviefreak.com, cool URL. Um, she wrote, race means well, and it certainly wants to tell Owen's story as completely as it can. Yet Hopkins and company can never quite get there. The whole enterprise coming up a little short of the finish line as it lumbers its way down the track. Sarah, you're with the puns. A lot. <laughs> like all the critics are, you are in your scene. That's for sure. So, I mean, I listened to less what she said about the film than her <laughs> display of uh, running double entendres, but for sure, I think what she says is true. It definitely doesn't quite hit on all cylinders, but I don't know. I just feel like this was more of a show-off blurb than anything. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> it really wanted to win that race. I mean, yeah. At the same time, I'm a wordsmith who likes to show off a ton too, so go for it. Those are some damn good puns. Uh, you know, I, I'm culpable of the same shit, Sarah. So if you're out there listening, which you're not, I'm not talking shit on you alone, on myself as well. So would you want to move to Letterbox now or you yeah, have any more? Switch up to Letterbox. All right. I'm not going to top those puns. Are you kidding me? Yeah, those puns just like out of the park. Scorecard 97 right there. <laughs> Roger Ebert is rolling over in his grave in jealousy and envy on those puns. So quickly, it came to my mind. And before we move into Letterboxes, it's totally out of sequence of everything. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the long jump? competition i think that that was one thing we we skipped over skimmed over yeah. and i thought that that had some tension and some depth to it yeah you talk about the long jump between him and like the german competitor kind of like helps him out becomes like an ally um just to give context basically jesse owens gets two fouls on his long first long jump attempt and his opponent gives him like a marker with a hit with the towel so he knows where to jump he jumps and they get a cool back and forth competition and jesse beats him like you said, it is actually, it is worth talking about because it's one of the better things that this movie does in terms of like, you know, looking at the other and the other being, like you said, you know, a German involved in, you know, the uprising of the Third Reich and where they sit in it positionally. And like you said, those tiny little protests, in his case, it was helping, you know, who was supposed to be the, the enemy, um, both from a country and a racial perspective and his reasons for it, right? It, it's all noble reasons. That is a good scene because it's, it's a very brief scene. It's a qu- quick explanation. It's not just justification of this thing, right? It's, it's a little more nuanced. And like you said, it gives us more of like kind of what we were talking about what we wanted with uh, Reifenstahl's character. You know, what what is the what is their motivations? And I think that's one of the things that was lacking, like we said, from the teammates and everything else, but we do get it from, from his character um, with his opposing runner. So yeah, I, I do like that scene. That's one of the stronger scenes for sure in the movie. And I like the way it ties back again to that conversation we have where he's a footnote in the end where you find out he gets sent to the front lines basically as a punishment, right? For his actions. And it's like you said, to survive the front lines, right? You have to, you have to fight and kill for not for that cause you believe in, but to, to survive. And I thought that was very interesting in terms of the conversation they had within, within uh, the film. Yeah. I forgot that footnote as well. And he died. Yeah. Uh, I forget exactly where, but he died in world war. Oh, he died. Uh, in normandy i think in the allied invasion possibly so he was in the war for a while if he made it that far yeah and we are i believe talking about carl ludes long i believe played by david cross and i also like this i think this is a perfect transition between our reviews because this is i think the one shining sliver of like what this film truly could have been we could kind of agree on like this was the possible race that was a 
uh, not a four star film, but maybe a three star film was, mm-hmm. was this depiction, right? Because uh, this character, Carl plays it perfectly. And I'm not trying to like give too much props to the actor or anything. I'm just saying like the writing of him, the way that you can tell he is complicit with the regime, right? With, with mm-hmm. Hitler, but, but not uh, an advocate of it in any way at all. He's absolutely mm-hmm. against it. Right. But I, the back and forth was complex in a way. He's likable. He's uh, good to Jesse Owens. He, he shows sportsmanship. He has integrity for the game. Integrity as a human. They have that great scene after in the Olympic Village, I take it, like in their dorm room where they have a drink and they talk and they're, they're just like two humans who are, they have some banter about how like he didn't let him win, but he's <laughs> glad he won. But he's also bitter that he won, just like so yeah. human, right? Because he's like he's an athlete and a competitor, and he didn't want to win by like you know a default. He wanted to compete against the best. I just love all that stuff. I do. I think that's great stuff. Timeless moral fiber to this character. But then again, they show him on the podium giving the salute. Why? You know, well, because mm-hmm. he's a German at this time. Like he has to. Like we, you know, we're expected to put our hands over our heart, right? It's what we do. Right if you don't, yeah, just like he'd have gotten shit right if he didn't. Yeah, and probably to a much vaster degree. So intriguing, though. Intriguing. I think that kind of some silver lining there we, we have. Yeah. So on Letterbox, what did you find? Okay, so I like this one because I, I have similar sentiments. Uh, this is from Matt Lynch, who gave it two and a half stars. Uh, very well-intentioned, not particularly interesting. Turns out the title's got a double meaning. Pretty clever. <laughs> I have to admit, <laughs> I was like, when I was loading up the notes for our discussion, I was like, oh, yeah, race works two ways. No wonder I didn't like this title. I didn't like this title to begin with. And then like, I have to admit the double meaning went over my head because it was, it was just too, too didactic. I got to say, but like, I just hated this title for so many reasons and that just solidified it. So yes, I agree with that. Uh, if he's being sarcastic, like I think he is. Yes. He's being very caustic here. I've read a lot of Matt review, Matt's reviews. Okay. And I feel like uh, we've mentioned it before, probably on here. That name sounds familiar. Yeah, I think he loves sports films as well. He's actually my friend on Letterboxd and like we don't talk or anything, but I've seen oh. his reviews a lot um, and we reciprocate likes from time to time and stuff. But we definitely got traction of, of Matt's reviews because of because of uh, this podcast, because we keep reading them again and again. And that caustic tone is perfectly on point. I think that that could recapitulate the whole movie. It's just like a little too clever and obvious and... It's trying to ingratiate itself to the audience. And so it's like that annoying psychophant who you're like, just get away. Stop, stop trying to like win me over and make me gush and make me swoon. I, I think that in a very pithy way, he gets at everything that's wrong in this movie. I'm going to go right above Matt Lynch to Matthew Sapiner. He doesn't really write in complete sentences, but he gets, he gets at the meat of this. He says, at first I was like, damn, why are they being so mean to this dude? Fuck Nazis. (laughs) Then I was like, damn, this dude running. Then he won. Then the Nazis got all sad and I was like, damn, Jesse Owens is my hero. (laughs) Oh, man. That could be an answer on a history test right there. Yeah, no words. No words for that one. Oh, man. This one comes from Talia Seria. She gives it three and a half stars. Uh, Talia writes, halfway through this, my mother turns to me and says, race has several meanings. That's what she wrote. And again, I'm just going to point this out. I'm not the only one who this flew over. <laughs> this simple this simple double entendre of this title. The complexities of it. That is uh, uh, lovely. You are not the only one, first of all. Some of us got racism. 
you're not you're not alone in this world and being obtuse on on this one element of the title of this movie uh, <laughs> that's one word how could you miss it i fucking miss it i find it hilarious i'm, I'm gonna hate myself i'm a complete pigeon in this movie i gotta i gotta hate on myself right now i no, i get it it's like it's like hidden in plain view it's when your keys are on the table and you don't see them it's not not in any intellectual incapacity it's just too easy <laughs> too easy they, they're like i get why you would miss it fair enough i empathize at least so i'm on your i'm on your side dude i'm not but i can make fun of you and and poke fun a little bit too at the same time so anyways i'm going to sw- uh, switch it up to Raphael jovine giving us a thumbs up in his avatar now Raphael, i am definitely interacted with plenty of times on letterbox and i just want to talk about this guy's race to watch the most movies of all time he watches four a day uninterrupted every single day of the year and writes four reviews. Now, I almost want to like do a sort of Guinness Book of World Records thing and make sure he's not faking this or just like having it on the TV or has an algorithm or a bot that creates these reviews. I know it's not a bot because he really interacts, but like that's some stamina, people. Like, I'm sorry, if you watch a film, your brain gets tired and you start to like get anxiety and panic. Um, I say you in the like collective third sense, first sense. Yes, maybe two films, maybe you could binge a bit, but four films a day every day and never have pause. That's insane. So they got to write about it after. Yeah. He, he writes in a very like, just like blah, but I get it. You're watching four movies a day. You're just trying to digest it. Get at some like tidbits. It's more like a journal. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. You know, it's not like it's idiot stuff. It's not bad. I'm going to read it right now, but I actually, I'm, I'm tremendously impressed because when I watched a ton of films, not four a day on end. Like I would actually watch four a day quite often, but I would have to like have breaks at least never breaks. That's what amazes me. Mm. He never has that like day of just like I disappeared or I, I needed a, a quick sabbatical. <laughs> That's what amazes me. I totally get how to watch four films in a, in a day, but not every day on it. So anyways, gone way too far with this. I'm sorry for the digression, but yes, my notes were like completely staccato gibberish when I watched way too much because consuming fatigues the mind. And you don't want to write shit. So Raphael says, I will cut to the chase, maybe as he always does, because he's already queuing up the next movie. But this movie follows beat by beat every cliche there is about this type of period biopic to the point sometimes I was close to rolling my eyes. That being said, the inner context and discussion that's never fully brought to conversation on the film where the movie clearly draws the parallel between is the racism during the Nazi regime and in America. And he continues on. Mm-hmm. I think it's also English is slightly a second language. I think it lives in Spain. So there's some grammatical errors that were a little difficult to get around, but it's very cogent stuff he's saying. I get what he's saying. There is an interesting parallel that I don't think it quite enough draws comparisons to, but it does. And that's like the racism is both in Nazi Germany and in America. And so, yeah, intriguing. And he gave it three and a half stars. I think that's a little too generous. I don't think this deserves over three. I'd probably give it two and a half though. Just curious on the five-star rating, where would you give it? I uh, like a two. Like I said, two, two and a half. I feel like two might be a little low. Solid, solid. So that almost brings us to a wrap of our Olympic themed movies. I know there's so many more. We have the Winter Olympics coming up in January, I believe, 2022 winter olympics so we'll get to go after miracle and cool runnings and all those fun ones at that time those are the ones i'm looking forward to <laughs> yes i believe that while it's debatable whether the summer and winter olympics are better in terms of competitive like entertainment value mm-hmm. cinematic value there's no question so yeah the best is yet to come people that's <laughs> all i'm going to say 
but hopefully personal best, wink, wink, if you get that quick pun, is the best of this group. Uh, and that's our last film of the bunch. It's also directed by Robert Town, who shot, I think he also wrote Without Limits. So we'll get to have some cross comparison between those two. And I don't know too much about it, but it's a little like indie film that's very slowly and steadily gathered a kind of cult following. If the synopsis is right, I have a very shallow understanding of it. I think it's about a lesbian couple who ends up competing against each other to make a spot on the Olympic team. So it's an interesting narrative for our au revoir so far in Cinematic Underdogs, right? We've mm-hmm. not tackled this topic before in any way. And so I'm excited for that. Is there anything that's intriguing you about this film uh, that you look forward or anticipate going I'm into? I'm stoked we're going to watch a movie that's not based on like a prominent figure, at least from your description. I haven't read the synopsis yet, but right? We've done Prefontaine, Jesse Owens, um, like the Oxford running team. Everything's been pretty big, big name stuff. So uh, yeah, I'm interested to see, again, something I'm not familiar with. Save here, and we may or may not have a guest. It's like the mystery prize in the cereal box. So you're just gonna have to tune in next time to find out. So that's it for race. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Peace.